In getting ready for this sermon, I'm just going to tell you, some weeks are easier on preachers than others. We're continuing our sermon series, In Between, Learning to Live in the Desert. And I knew some weeks ago what I'd be preaching this Sunday related to the desert and this wilderness sermon series and what it means to live a more disciplined life, or as I've entitled the sermon today, what it means to break the cycle. What we're going to be focusing on today is the Ten Commandments, but not, not all ten of them. I'm going to choose the first two. And then we're going to focus on that aspect of, um, of the Exodus story where we have the Hebrew children in the wilderness getting a little anxious and taking matters into their own hands and creating the golden calf. What I want to say about this morning's sermon, however, is that as we look at um, our idols in this world, as we look at what it means to be people of faith, as we look at what it means in this country, the United States of America, that we all love so well, there's no greater country in the world. We are people of faith first. And that's what I love about God and country. Because before we get into our patriotic celebrations in just a few days, which we all love, we get to focus on who we are as people of faith and worshipers of God in light of all the things God has given us, but especially the gift of our country. But we've got challenges, don't we? And some of those challenges have been brought to the forefront in these days. And if we can't talk about these challenges in light of who we are as people of faith, then what are we to do? So today I want to address some of these challenges, but just to... Uh, to keep things in proper perspective, I think this is suitable. We are people of faith. We are people, citizens of this country. Now, there may be some who would say we are a Christian nation or America is a Christian nation. That's not exactly true. We are a nation that was founded on judeo christian Christian principles that strongly undergird the best of what we are as United States citizens and as a country. Today we pick up with another leader, Moses, a leader who's trying to lead his people from this wandering into the wilderness into a place where they can truly live into a faith in God and a love toward others. And so Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and he's given the Ten Commandments and he comes down with the Ten Commandments and they're quite clear. The first part of those Ten Commandments is how to love God. The second part of those Ten Commandments is how we love others, how we treat others. And then Moses isn't through, nor is God, and Moses continues to go into that place, that cloudy place where he's given many more laws Many more guidelines, if you will. Much more instruction about how to break the cycle of being godless people into being God-fearers. 
And so we are a people in our Judeo-Christian tradition of laws. We are a people of instruction from God. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. I'd like to turn your attention to Exodus, the 20th chapter, and like to invite us all to stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read verses 1 through 5 of this larger chapter. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make of yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. We're not quite through yet. Remain standing. Turn over to chapter 32. This is what happens to God's people when they start taking matters into their own hands. They go back to what they knew in the olden days in Egypt. And so Moses has been gone for some days now. And so they take matters into their own hands. Beginning with the first verse of the 32nd chapter. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come make gods for us. You shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the gold rings that are on your ears, the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them and formed it into a mold and cast an image of a calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. They rose early the next day and they offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. The Lord said to Moses, Go down there at once. Your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone so that my wrath may burn not against them and I may consume them. And of you I will make a great Nation. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. You know, we read that story about the golden calf and we think, you know, that was so silly and so stupid of Aaron. 
to allow people to create that golden calf and we could never find ourselves bowing to such an, such an idol, right? Wrong. We make idols out of much more than graven images, don't we? We're accustomed to making idols spiritual matters that feeds the cycle of our egocentrism. Let me say that again. We are accustomed to making idols into a spiritual matter that feeds our egocentrism. The first thing I want to say this morning is that idolatry is bowing at the altar of making our means, our desires, into ends or into gods. You think about that. Idolatry first is, is, is making our means, our desires, into ends as our gods. So when our means or our desires become the ends of the object of our worship, idolatry is at hand. You know, it's a good thing to worship God and to have no other gods, and all of us can ascribe to that this morning. That's why we're here. We're here to worship God. But I have seen some people, good people, good Christian people, who get wed to a style of worshiping God, a particular order of worship, a liturgy, a certain kind of music and the way the music should be sung. Uh, even screens get into all of this mix. Oh, I shouldn't have gone there. And then the means become what we worship. And we lose sight of the ends, which is to worship God, right? Now, this is just one example. I mean, you can apply this uh, means and ends analogy to a lot of different aspects of our life and our living and our faith. But I have seen people get so in love with a particular building or a holy ground which sits in a particular space that it becomes so important to them that that holy space, that means to a greater purpose, thwarts their understanding, and it becomes idolatry. Now, back in my 30s, when I was at uh, First Methodist Church in Houston, an associate pastor, downtown Houston, in a beautiful old sanctuary that had been there for mm, nearly 100 years, but they'd been a congregation for 150. They had moved uh, four different times in their life cycle. At that time, it was the largest church in our connection, some 14,000 members. And I was in charge of evangelism. I was in charge of bringing those members in and, um, and making sure that we had many members coming by profession of faith and baptism. We were bringing in 600 members a year. But the bad news was we were this big church and there were about that many going out the back door, some of which we didn't even know about. And one thing was obvious. We, we weren't growing when it came to families. We weren't getting these young families with children and youth into the church. And so our pastor, Bill Henson, said, we need to study this. And so we hired a consultant who studied us for some time and quite thoroughly. Now, at that time, I taught a Sunday school class that had 350 members, and there were about 175 or 200 of us 
on a given Sunday. And these folk, the Adelphi class, they did love their class and they loved their church. And unlike most Sunday school classes that I've been a part of, they had this understanding that we're called to grow. We don't want to get ingrown. We don't want to become a family that kind of excludes others. We want to constantly be seeking new people. We want to grow, which is exciting. It was fun to teach that class every Sunday. They'd been together for 40 years. And when the consulting plan came out, that in order for the church to really grow and to attract young families, they couldn't do it downtown. That downtown, those 600 people who were joining the church were largely empty nesters or retired people who saw this as a great place. Go to the traditional sanctuary, to the traditional worship service, sing those traditional songs, look at that traditional stained glass and everything will be great. But the consultant said, you need a location about 14 miles west of here where you start a second congregation. Woo! That was not music to all ears. In fact, I was given that project. But I was also still responsible for the Adelphi class, and many of them were not happy. They started blaming the pastor. Well, all he wants to do is relocate the congregation. This is all just a trick. They're going to get us out there with a new uh, sanctuary, and then uh, the old sanctuary will be sold for a price. And rumors were flying. There were some people in that church that were so tied to the style of worship and the place of worship and, and the way things were, they liked the pastor that they had, they liked the Sunday school teacher they had, I hope, and they liked everything the way they had it, and they couldn't see anything beyond it. And therefore, the purpose of the church uplifting the name of Christ and evangelism growing, uh, that ends became completely disregarded for the means of where we stand today. Therefore, the church was in the midst of idolatry. Keeping our eyes on the ends of reaching people for Jesus Christ must always be the church's passion and mission. And the means to which we get there should not ever become that which we worship, an idol. The second thing I want to say this morning, that bowing at the altar of things instead of the person of God is also idolatry. When things become more important than the person of God or even more important than persons, then we have slipped into idolatry. That's what the Ten Commandments are about. That's what the laws are about. The laws are to put things in proper perspective so we break the cycle. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and the commandments tell you how. And you love your neighbor as you love yourself, and the commandments tell you those things that make for good neighborly living. And so when things become more important than the person of God or the people of God, then we have slipped into idolatry. You know, have you ever wondered why Jesus spoke so much about giving it away? Jesus' discussions of, of giving uh, are second only to his discussions about love. 
Because Jesus knew how prone we were to fall in love with our things, our stuff, or the money that, the stuff, that, that buys the stuff and the things. And so Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, and in many places following, gives us instruction. Don't fall in love with the stuff. He even says that if, if your earthly treasure is becoming your treasure, then you need to pluck it out if it's causing you to sin. You need to cut it off if it's causing you to think that you can't live without it. So Jesus encouraged us to put our treasures in those things that are of heaven or those things that are of God. Those things that are godly and about how we love God. Those things that are godly about how we love others. That's where we put our treasures. And, and finally today, but don't let finally cause you to think that I'm about ready to quit, okay? Some biblical translations say about this second commandment, Instead of do not make for yourselves an idol, the translations say, do not make of yourselves an idol. There is a difference. And both translations are right. Idolatry comes into our lives when we think that we are the center of the universe. When, when we act as if our ego is the most important aspect of life. You know, we all have personal idols that we're called to destroy. But I want us to look at the larger community this day as we end this sermon. Perhaps all of us have thought, you know, about this related to the means and the ends, and I can't let these, the means become what I worship. Maybe all of us have thought a little bit about, you know, maybe I am too consumed by my stuff or my things or, or my money. And, and, and maybe I do things that are a little bit too selfish, self-centered. But the church is always called to think beyond the person, the one-on-one, -on -one, to the effect on the community. And that's where I want to take us this morning as we close. Don't think when I say, as we close, that I'm about ready to be finished. I want to lift up the words of Oscar Romero, a Central American bishop, prophet, and martyr. The words that he wrote just a few days before he was assassinated. Dear brothers and sisters, do not betray your service to this ministry of God's Word. It is very easy to be servants of the Word without disturbing the world in any way. We can spiritualize our words so that they lack any commitment to history. We can speak words that sound good in any part of the world because they say nothing about the world. Such words create no problems. They give rise to no conflicts. The word that characterizes the authentic church 
is the word that causes conflicts and even persecution. It is the searing word of the prophets that announces and denounces. It announces the marvelous works of God so that the people will believe and worship God. And it denounces the sins of those who oppose God's kingdom and God's ways. I couldn't stand in this pulpit this morning without reminding us of what we knew when we came here. We have been captivated by a discussion that seems to be a bit off base, if you ask me, related to immigration and our borders to the south. Some of us have gone to bed at night with sobs of little children ringing in our ears. We've all found ourselves at least tempted to point fingers, if not outright pointing fingers. Some of us pointing fingers at the parents who knew better than to break the law were people of the law and bring those children across the border. Some of us have been quick to point fingers at the government for separating families, parents or mothers from children. I've had my email kind of fired up all week with some of you saying, what are we to do? What are we to do? I don't know what are we to do. But, but I'm going to make a stab at it. Our bishops, no doubt, felt the same pressure. Our five bishops of Texas got together, just our Texas bishops, and they wrote a letter. I'm not going to read the whole letter, but I would encourage you to do so by going online. You can go on our conference website and the letter's there. But here's how the letter begins. We are heartened to see President Trump sign an executive order today ending the administration's policy of separating families at the border. Furthermore, we commend him for taking this action and putting the needs of the children in the forefront. The humanitarian and moral crisis that has escalated over the past several weeks along our southern border is difficult to fathom. Approximately 2,000 children have been separated from their parents attempting to apply for asylum and seeking safety from the violence in their own countries. Acknowledging the differences many persons have on matters of immigration and refugees, we still call upon United Methodists to be public witnesses regarding the plight and conditions of these children. You know, the bishops are smart enough to know what we who preach to you every Sunday know, that we're not all of the same mind politically, socially. We have differing opinions. We come from different persuasions. But the bishops are turning our eyes on to the children and how we can solve this issue of separation. Now, if the ends that we desire are to have safe and secure borders, that's one thing that we don't need to lose sight of. 
I would add to that if the ends are that we have safe and secure borders that in keeping with our Judeo-Christian value, the number one value of the Judeo-Christian um, uh, theology is to welcome the stranger, to provide hospitality to the foreigner, for you may be entertaining angels unaware. If this becomes the driver, Safety, security, and stranger-friendly borders. Then we need to be careful not to see the means of a wall or the means of cages or detention centers or any other means that we could point to as that which we worship. We've got to encourage those we elect to get together. We have to insist on getting together across political aisles and working some of this stuff out. When you hear the rhetoric, you hear that there's a lot more in common than there are differences, but some of these differences have become means that are keeping us from a greater end. We have to get to a different place. I think we also need to name that this is not an immigration issue primarily. It's an issue that we have to own as a problem in our country too, and we have to address it with all the fervor we can possibly muster. There are too many people in our country that bow at the altar of opioids and other drugs that create a market And drug lords in the South who break every commandment to gain riches and things. They fight each other and they create such a scene of war that the poor and the children get caught in the middle. And that puts them at search for a different life. That's what we're seeing with these Honduran refugees. Mothers and fathers, and uncles and aunts are brutally murdered. Where do we find a better place? And this country that has too many people bowing at the altar of drugs and addiction has to correct this problem in order for the other issues to be addressed as well in proper perspective. Friends, if this isn't enough to remind us that we have big issues in our country that we love so well, that is the greatest country in all of the world, we need to be praying about and we as Christians need to call our country to principles and values that are based on the Ten Commandments and other laws given to Moses that make for more assurance of a life lived in worship of God and in love of the neighbor. Friends, I don't have answers. We all can find our own answers. But I'm going to encourage you tonight to start by coming to God and country. And when you're here, don't only listen to the music, but pray for our country. Pray for our leaders. Pray a prayer of thanksgiving that our country 
is based on Judeo-Christian values that must be adhered to because that's what made us great. And friends, believe that God can make a way. Amen.